0: For me, it's been a blessing to, to study about the end times as seen through these prophets. And and uh, as we learned last week, these last few chapters of Zechariah are all about the first and second coming of Jesus Christ. And so there's just some uh, fascinating prophecies here, uh, especially in chapter 12, chapter 14, uh, uh, for these things to have been predicted. Uh Thousands of years. Some of them. Some of these events. Thousands of years before they uh, take place. They haven't even taken place yet. But we know they're going to take place, and we see all of the 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 characters being uh, uh, put in place, and all the situations being put in place that that uh, make it possible for uh, the Lord to be coming back really soon. So, uh, anyway we want to pick up in chapter number 12 tonight. And uh, the first thing that Zechariah is going to do uh, in this prophecy, at the beginning of the prophecy, he's going to establish the fact that God is sovereign uh, over all the events that we see happen uh, in the end times. Uh, uh, even in the what we see as the terrible events that Transpa- uh, that, uh, that come about in the day of the Lord and so uh, what seems to be good, what seems to be bad, uh, God is sovereign over all of us and that's what we're going to be looking at tonight. So uh, it, especially in the first part of this chapter. so pick up with me in verse number 12. I mean chapter number 12, verse number one. And he says, the burden of the word of the Lord against Israel, or you could say the prophecy of the word of the Lord against Israel. Thus says the Lord, and now here's how Zechariah is going to show you that God is sovereign over all of this. He says, thus says the Lord who stretches out the heavens and lays the foundation of the earth and forms the spirit of men within him. Now notice that all of those are present tense verbs. And so God is always stretching out the heavens. He's always laying the foundation of the earth. He's always working on the spirit of man within him. God controls the spirit of good man and of bad man. And so whatever happens during these events that are going to be described here in chapter 12 and really in the rest of Zechariah and what we're looking at in Revelation, uh, all of it, uh happens uh uh within the permissive will of God, and so God is in charge of all of this because first of all it says he stretches out the heavens that's that's kind of a an amazing statement right there because we know that that the universe is is uh ever expanding it's always expanding he's always stretching it out it's always more and more space as we as we Every year passes, we, we, we see more stars and more space, and so the universe is expanding. He also, he lays the foundations of the earth. What's the foundation of the earth? Well, the, we we're told in Job uh, chapter 26 that the Lord hangs the earth in space. And so the the place where the earth is hung in space is constantly changing because the earth is moving a thousand of miles per hour. And so, uh, but he's in charge of that. We're told in Colossians that, all things were created by Jesus, and by Him, all things are held together. And so He, we're, good thing He holds us together, or we'll just, you know, we'd just be uh, out in outer space somewhere. But we're held together in in our uh, galaxy and uh, in perfect position with the sun and the moon, so that we have the seasons that we have. And so God is in charge of all of these things, but He's also forms, and He's always forming, the spirit of men within Him, and so. Uh, we're told in the book of Romans that some people have been formed for wrath and some people have been formed for mercy. And so when you see someone with a wicked spirit, I mean, to some degree, God has given that man that choice and God controls those spirits. God controls God. I mean, we sometimes think that the devil is in control, but God is in charge of the devil. And so ultimately God is in control. And so, if he wants to put it in someone's heart, to uh, uh, some leader's heart, to attack a country, he can put it in their heart to attack a country. Uh, the king, the heart of the king, is in the hand of the, is in the hand of the Lord. We're told in the in the Bible, and so, uh, so is the spirit of man within him, so that everything that happens in the day of the Lord, is done just as God desires. Uh, the good things and the bad things uh, operate within his sovereign will. And so in the day of the Lord, one of the things that we're going to see and what we're going to be looking at, and this is why Zechariah sets it up this way, in the day of the Lord, God is going to put it in the spirit of men to have this zealous desire to control the city of Jerusalem. There's a, you know, we just, we just, We're in jerusalem a few weeks ago and i don't know why anybody would want to control that city it's not the greatest city in the world but but god's going to put it in the hearts of these leaders of the world that it is the greatest city of the world and that they're and and you see that to some degree now and so uh uh, people say that jerusalem is the center of the world in fact even the dome of the rock there's a there's a rock in there that marks supposedly the very center of the world What's the center of the world? I could say Lafayette's the center of the world because everything goes north, east, west, and south from Lafayette. I'm the center of the world. (laughs) And sometimes in my mind I shouldn't be, but I think a lot of us think we're the center of the world. The world revolves around us. But but, uh, in that day, in the day of the Lord, people are going to see Jerusalem as the center of the world, and everyone's going to want to control the center of the world. And look at what he says in verse number two. He says, "Behold, I will make Jerusalem a cup of drunkenness. In other words, it's 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 going to make people feel good. It's going to be what they want. It's going to be uh, just like a man who longs for wine, they're going to long for for to control Jerusalem. He says, "I will make Jerusalem a cup of drunkenness to all the surrounding peoples, to all the nations. Sometimes, The word people, it's the same word that's translated nation. Sometimes maybe it's better translated nation. So he's saying to all the nations, it's going to be a cup of drunkenness. They're going to all want to uh, control Jerusalem when they lay siege against Judah and Jerusalem. And it will happen, verse number three, and it shall happen in that day that I will also make Jerusalem a very heavy stone. Not only will they desire to control the city, uh, that desire to control the city is going to be a burden to them. It's going to cause them a lot of trouble. And that's true now. You know, and I, I see a lot of people that I think pull this out of context because I think it's a future prophecy. But in some degree, uh, Jerusalem is a burdensome stone to the nations now. I mean, you just look at the reaction that took place when Donald Trump declared that he was going to move the American embassy to Jerusalem. Well, he could t- say he's going to move the American embassy in, in uh, France from Paris to some other city and, and nobody would care. But Jerusalem is, is this burdensome stone and, and uh, it has been and it's going to even be more so uh, in the Great Tribulation. He says, I will make it, Jerusalem, a very heavy stone for all peoples. All would who heave it away will surely be cut to pieces though all nations of the earth are gathered against it. And so one day, uh, uh, all the nations are going to ascend upon Jerusalem and, uh, uh, during the Great Tribulation, uh, and all of the leaders of the world will be drunk with the desire to have a part in controlling Jerusalem. You, you see that right now. In all the surrounding countries, uh, that, uh, all the countries rather that surround Jerusalem, all of those leaders want to take Jerusalem. They want to drive the Jews into the sea and they want to take control of, uh, of Jerusalem. And we know from Daniel chapter 11 and Daniel, uh, Revelation chapter 19, that at the last part of the Great Tribulation, the antichrist is going to inhabit jerusalem and in the first part of the tri- tribulation you can have those two witnesses prophesying in jerusalem uh jerusalem even now and in that it's the center for you know for most religions so so uh you can see why there's going to be this burning desire to control uh jerusalem and so we know from uh, Daniel chapter 11, that the Antichrist is going to occupy Jerusalem. He's going to occupy Jerusalem and then he's going to be attacked from armies from the north and armies from the south and eventually he's going to be; those armies are going to be joined by armies from the east. And so what you have, you have all the armies of the world gathering against the Antichrist in Israel. Now they won't fight the battle there in Jerusalem. He will go out and meet them in the valley of Armageddon. And then you have this war that that uh, leads to the coming of Jesus Christ and, and uh, 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 his second coming. Who's in control of all of this? I mean, back in verse number one, the, what, remember what he said in verse number one, he's the one who lays the, uh, stretches out the heavens and lays the foundation of the world and forms the spirit of man within him. So it's the Lord who's in control of all this. The one who formed the spirits of these men and the one who controls the spirits of these men, he's the one who's made them drunk with this desire to control Jerusalem. And uh, he's made them bold. He's, he's going to give them this boldness where they're going to uh, descend upon Israel at this great battle. And all he's doing here, he's setting a trap for all of these armies and they're going to be gathered together. And then Jesus is going to return and by his word, he's going to destroy these armies himself. Then he says in, in uh, verse number 4, look at what happens. He says, in that day, says the Lord, I will strike every horse. Now, he's talking about the, the, the horses of these armies or the equipment of these armies. I will strike every horse with confusion and its rider with madness. I will open my eyes on the house of Judah, and I will strike every horse of the people with blindness. In other words, they're going to turn on each other in this battle. God's not going to have to do anything. By his word, he, by putting this in the spirit of man and putting the fear in, in these soldiers, uh, there's going to be this great confusion, and they're going to turn on each other. God, that's a pretty common method that God used. Uh, if you remember uh, when Israel fought their battles against other enemies, and he's using it again right here. Actually, there's a modern uh, uh, uh version of, of God doing this if you, you go back and you study one of the fa- one of the fascinating s- historical studies is to take a look at uh, Israel's six day war and how they won that war. I mean Syria just give you one example at the north Syria had 40,000 men, 260 tanks and they had they were they had control at that time of the Golan Heights so they had the they had the height advantage. They could see what was going on. And they attacked Israel, and they came down to Capernaum. And there was one little kibbutz there called Tel Dan with just a few hundred soldiers and a couple of tanks. And the next thing you knew, the whole Syrian army was fleeing for their lives. I mean, they were they, who put that fear, you know, who put that, that kind of fear in mean, them? It wasn't those couple of tanks and those few hundred soldiers, it was God who put confusion, struck every horse with confusion and every rider with madness and and then they, they, they turned away and they ran. He says, I will strike every horse with confusion and its rider with madness. I will open my eyes on the house of Judah and I will strike every horse of the peoples with blindness. So God's the one who's going to send this spirit of confusion on these great armies and he's going to protect his people. Look down at verse number five. He says, And the governors of Judah shall shall say in their heart, the inhabitants of Jerusalem are my strength in the Lord of hosts. Really, maybe better wording is, the inhabitants of Jerusalem will say that the Lord of hosts is my strength. The Lord who is over the armies of of God, the armies of heaven, and he's their God. Now, so in that day, finally, instead of finding strength in their army, I mean, these armies are going to be too big for Israel to fight. It's going to be too much. And already they're under the control of the Antichrist. But in that day, they're going to find their strength in the Lord of hosts. And they will realize at that point, for some reason, they're going to understand that the Lord has joined them in their battle against these armies and, and that the Lord, is the, one, uh, the Lord is the one who is on their side. You know, one of the things... If you can find out whose side you're on when you're in a difficult situation, if you know whose side you're on, it makes it a lot easier, especially if you're on the Lord's side. If you, and whatever situation we're in, I know, no matter how difficult it is, if, if, if we're on the Lord's side, then we're on the right side. We're on the winning side. And as born-again believers, you know we're more than conquerors through Jesus Christ. We're always on the Lord's side. Now, the Lord's not necessarily on our side but we should be on the Lord's side. Too many times, I think, where we make our mistake is we try to get the Lord to be on our side instead of us trying to be on the Lord's side. You remember Joshua, when Joshua, before they entered the Promised Land, that night he, before they entered, he saw the angel of the Lord, and he asked him whose side he was on. And the Lord didn't even answer that question. He said, you're on holy ground. You're on holy ground. Take off your shoes. You're on holy ground. You're speaking to God Almighty, and you're on my side. And because you're on my side, I'm going to tell you how you're going to get my victory. It's not your victory. It's my victory. And in that day, the Israelites, these inhabitants of Jerusalem, are going to find their strength in the Lord of hosts because they're on the right side in this battle. It's not that the Lord's on their side. It's that they're on the Lord's side. And in that day, I will make, he says in verse number six, in that day, I will make the governors of Judah like a fire plant pan in the woodpile. Well, the fire pan in the woodpile is the one thing that survives the fire. The fire pan survives the fire and the, a, the fiery uh, torch, which sets the fire on fire, survives the fire too. So they're, they're going to be like the fire pan and like the fiery torch in that they shall devour all the surrounding peoples on the right hand and on the left. But Jerusalem shall be inhabited again in her own place, Jerusalem. So... Uh, Jerusalem has this great future where the Lord's going to save Jerusalem. As he says in verse number seven, the Lord will save the tents of Judah first out of all the Israelites. The first people to be who are going to be saved when the Lord comes back are the tents of Judah so that the glory of the house of David will be the greatest glory of all. And the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem will be the greatest in Judah because it's going to be Jerusalem where he comes and, does battle and he defeats these armies. And uh, he says, and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem shall not become greater than, than that of Judah. So uh, they're going to be the greatest tribe on earth. They're going to be the greatest people on earth. Other than us, the church, they're going, to be, they're going to be the greatest people on earth. Verse number eight, in that day the Lord will defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem. The one who is feeble among them in that day will be like David, like that kibbutz I talked about in, in Capernaum, you know, they're going to, they're, they're, they're going to, they were able to fight off 40,000 men. These guys are going to be like the giants going to come against them. These, the, these giants in the form of these nations are going to come against them, but they're going to be like uh, uh, David was against Goliath because the Lord's going to defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And the house of David shall be like God, and the angel of the Lord, and they shall be like the angel of the Lord before them. So they are going to be mighty men of God in that day uh, when the Lord returns. And in verse number 9, he says, And it shall be in that day that I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. Now, we know from Revelation chapter 19 that when the, uh, these armies come against Jerusalem and they meet in the valley of Armageddon before they make it to Jerusalem, The Lord comes back to the earth and on his way back he speaks a word and out of his mouth comes a sword and he destroys the armies of this world. And so uh, it's going to be a short work, a short victory. And then at that point, at that point, that's when revival comes to this remnant of Israelites that are left on this earth. Look at verse number 10. At that point he says, and I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem. That's why uh, he goes, you go back to verse number 7. He says, I will save the tents of Judah first so that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem shall not become greater than that of Judah. And so he says, I will, and here he says, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. And then they will look on him whom they've pierced. And yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son, and grieve for him as one grieves for his, for, his, for a firstborn child. And in that day, verse number eleven, there shall be a great mourning in Jerusalem, like the mourning at Hadad Ramon in the plain of Megiddo. Now, there, there's he's speaking of a time when Josiah was killed, uh, the great king Josiah. Remember, led that revival. Israel was in the tank and. Josiah brought him out of the tank and and got him back to reading the word and studying the word and there was this revival in the land and then he dies uh, in the plain of Megiddo and so uh, there was great mourning in that day and that mourning is going to be like that. Uh, they're going to mourn the fact that they're going to look upon the Lord. They're going to, God, first of all, for them to be able to see he's going to pour out the spirit of grace but when he does, they're going to, Look upon the Lord and on me, he says, on me. Now notice, notice the, the, the pronouns in caps. So we're speaking of God here, and it's God whom they pierced. The Lord Jesus is speaking here. It's the Lord Jehovah speaking, but he's speaking of himself as Jesus Christ. And they will mourn for him, for the Lord, as one mourns for his only son. So... You go, we don't, we're not going to jump there tonight, but if you were to go to Zechariah chapter 14, you would see, uh, well, actually you can look at it. Look at verse number three. It says, and we'll be looking at this in a couple of weeks, but he says, Then the Lord shall go forth and fight against those nations. Now, Zechariah is like Revelation. You can't put it in chronological order. He's developing a plot here and he has a purpose in the way he develops that plot. And he jumps back and forth through time. He's done that throughout the book of Zechariah. And so you don't want to put that in chronological order. But we know that, that, uh, that what we're looking at in chapter 12 is the second coming of Jesus Christ. When, when uh, he pours out his spirit after the great tribulation, after those armies are defeated, he pours out his spirit. But bringing that back into context, look at chapter 14... And look at verse number 3. He says, then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations. That's the same thing we're looking at here in chapter number 12. As he fights in the day of the battle. The battle of Armageddon. Now, in that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. Which faces Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two. You go to Jerusalem. And you stand on the Temple Mount. And if you look. Across the Kidron Valley, there's a Mount of Olives. And you see the Mount of Olives, and in front of the Mount of Olives is one of the largest graveyards in the world. It's because every Jew knows this passage that one day the Messiah is going to land on the Mount of Olives, and so they want to be buried on the Mount of Olives. And Like Menachabagan is buried on the Mount of Olives. Caiaphas is buried on the Mount. We've talked about that before. They found his ossuary. They put his ossuary in a museum, and they buried his bones on the Mount of Olives. And so all of these people, if they're resurrected that day, I don't know how it's all going to work, but they will see, just as Jesus told Caiaphas, you will see me coming in the clouds of glory. And he's going to land on the Mount of Olives, and the Mount of Olives is going to be split in two. I mean, to to get a grave site there, if you're interested in getting one, uh, and you want to be there and have a front row seat when the Lord returns, but you'll already be with the Lord. So it won't matter. You're going to return with Him. But if that's the way your theology is, and you believe in soul sleep, and you think that's where the resurrection takes place, and you want to see it when He lands, then uh, it only costs a quarter of a million per gravesite. So that's the low. That's that's the low end. They go as high as five hundred thousand dollars, and so. So uh, if you want a front row seat, that's what it'll cost you. But guess what? You're going to have better than a front row seat. If you're a born again believer, you're going to be caught up in the air to be with the Lord. And then we're going to return with the Lord uh, when he comes to rule and reign on this earth. And so uh, anyway, he says in that day, when that happens, he says, I'm going to pour out my spirit. And then they're going to recognize Jesus Christ as their Messiah. Up until that point, you're not going to get many Jews who are going to recognize Jesus Christ as a Messiah. Because what are we told in Romans chapter 11, verse 25, that uh, blindness in part has come to Israel until the, fullness of the Gentiles, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, until that time is fulfilled. Uh, they're blind to the truth that Jesus is Messiah. I mean, you can, you can sit and show them prophecies like this about he's pierced, his hands and feet are pierced. Don't you see that? It's got to be the Lord. They can't see that. And you can't convince them of that. The only, the only ones that can be convinced of that are the ones that the Father draws near to them and opens their eyes before their time has come. Because their eyes are not going to be open. This remnant's eyes is not going to be open until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And when that happens, then there's going to be this revival. And that revival is going to coincide with the coming of the Lord. And then they're going to look on Jesus Christ and they're going to see him in his glory. And they're going to realize, they're going to see his hands and they're going to see those scars on his hands. And they're going to see those scars on his feet. And they're going to realize that they were responsible for crucifying the Lord of glory. Exactly what Peter said and Paul said to the Jews on a couple of occasions. Stephen said to the Jews as he was being stoned, "You guys are responsible for killing the Lord of Glory," and they' and and hey, that made them mad before, and they were glad that they'd killed Jesus Christ, but he wasn't the Lord of Glory in their eyes. But in that day, they're going to actually recognize the fact, and 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 spiritually they're going to recognize that fact, not just because they see his glory, but they're going to recognize that in their heart spiritually because their spiritual eyes are going to be open, and they're going to know that they're, have, they were responsible for his uh, crucifixion, and there's going to be this intense, intense mourning. Uh, they're going to afflict their souls worse than they even did when Josiah died in the Valley of Megiddo. That's the picture. That's the best comparison that that uh, Zechariah could come up with for a a terrible time in Israel's history. And then it says in verse number 12, he says, and the land shall mourn. Now the whole land of Israel is going to mourn. Every family by itself. Now he doesn't go through all the tribes. He just goes through a few of the tribes. He says, the family of the house of David by itself and their wives by themselves. The family of the house of Nathan by itself and their wives by themselves. The family of the house of Levi by itself. And their wives by themselves, the family of Shemai by itself, and their wives by themselves. All the families that remain, every family by itself, and their wives by themselves. They're going to mourn. And they're going to to realize their sin. They're going to realize that when Jesus came the first time, they had him killed. And they will afflict their souls. They will afflict their souls. Now, what's amazing about all of this is that it was predicted way back, not just in Zechariah's time, but when the Israelites were given the feast. It was even the prophecy about the day of the Lord and the the affliction of their souls and the Feast of Tabernacles, the Passover, all of these feasts that are fulfilled in Jesus Christ, they were given to the Jews way back when they were wandering around out in the wilderness. I mean, uh, these events uh, coincide events we're looking at here. I mean, you start, uh, we, we just pick up at the end times. You start with the Feast of Trumpets. The Feast of Trumpets is the harvest and that's when you and I are harvested from this earth. That's why I believe that when the Feast of trumpets, that we will go to heaven on Rosh Hashanah. And nobody knows the exact day. There's different days every time about Rosh Hashanah. So I'm not predicting the day or an hour, and I don't know which year it's going to be. But, but this time of year, you're not, you're not going to get raptured. You might die and get raptured. But you're not going to, the rapture of the church is going to take place. I can tell you right now. You, remember I said that once, you in heaven. The rapture, if it happens tonight, you can say, George, George, you are wrong. <laughs> But I'm not, because it's given to us. This I mean, Pentecost happened on the day of Pentecost. Rosh Hashanah is going to happen. I mean, the Rapture is going to happen when those trumpets are blown. I believe those trumpets coincide with the blowing of the trumpets of the Great Tribulation. And so, we're when when the Great Tribulation begins, we're going to be out of here. We're going to be we're, the Feast of Trumpets is the harvest, and we're going to be we're going to be taken out of here, and then and then after that. Uh, Then after that, you have the Day of Atonement. That's the next feast that has to be fulfilled on the the schedule of the feast. And in one sense, I think the Great Tribulation represents the Day of Atonement. But if you want a specific day for the Day of Atonement, that's what we're looking at right here in chapter 12. When he pours out his uh, his spirit of grace. I mean, they don't deserve this. It's a spirit of grace and supplication. I mean, God the Lord praying for them and giving them grace. That's why they're saved. That's the only reason they're saved. The only reason they're saved is that their eyes are opened by God and that they're who controls the spirit of man. We just saw that earlier. God controls the spirit of man. And so he's going to put in their spirits. He's going to open their eyes. He's going to put in their spirits this mourning, this affliction. And and on that day of atonement, they're going to mourn like they've never mourned before. What comes after the, the The Day of Atonement the y'all don't know, come on, the Feast of Tabernacles. what's the Feast of Tabernacles when we dwell with the Lord? And so I, the Feast of Tabernacles is fulfilled in the millennium when God dwells with his people. Okay, just to, just to show you that, jump over to to uh, chapter See if I can find it here. Chapter 14, look down at verse number 16. Look at this. And it shall come to pass, almost to the very end of the book there, and it shall come to pass that everyone who is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem shall go up from year to year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to keep what? The Feast of Tabernacles. The Jews will be keeping the Feast of Tabernacle. They will dwell in the very presence of God Almighty. God will have a temple there in Jerusalem. I have no doubt about it. I don't know that it will be built until after the the, the millennial temple. I personally believe it won't be built until after the Great Tribulation. And I believe that's the temple that Ezekiel measures out over in the latter part of Ezekiel. And then they will dwell. The Lord will dwell in that temple and those in Jerusalem and those in Judea and those in Israel will tabernacle with the Lord. But it will not the Feast of Tabernacles won't just be celebrated by the Jew. It will be celebrated by the Gentiles too because all the Gentiles will come up year to year to see. Can you imagine this? I mean, going to Jerusalem is kind of a cool thing to do, I can tell you. But, but going to Jerusalem to see the King of kings and Lord of lords in his physical glory, can you imagine that? And that's what we have in store for us. But you know what? All of this is about Israel. And it's about those who will be left on this earth after the great tribulation. The Gentiles who will be left on this earth. The nations who will be left on this earth after the sheeps and the goats are separated. And uh, then there's going to be nations that are left on this earth. Really? Hey, don't sell yourself short. We're way ahead of the game. We're already celebrating to some degree the Feast of the Tabernacles. Because where is God's tabernacle now? God's tabernacle is in my heart. And he's in your heart. And and so we have the privilege of observing the Feast of Tabernacles right now, this very day. I mean, you know... We make choices every day Do we live our lives recognizing the fact that God is tabernacling with us. That our body is his holy temple. That he's with us no matter what we do, where we go, what we say, what we think. God is there. He's in us. Not in the way he's going to be in us uh, after the rapture. But after the rapture, we're going to be so full of God's spirit. And so full of his presence that we will never have that sense that he's not there, that he's not with us, that he, we will recognize his presence always and forever. And when we land here on earth, we'll see all of the other people getting a chance to get a, just a little bit of taste of what we've been given for eternity, what we were given a deposit on, When we first received Jesus Christ, I mean, that's why when Jesus was talking about John the Baptist and he said, there's never been a greater man who's lived on this earth, but he's the least, if he would be the least in the kingdom of heaven as a great prophet of God, he would be the least in the kingdom of heaven because of the great privilege you compare what a prophet is to the privilege that you and I have as born again been believers where God is tabernacling with us even now. That's a much greater position and a much greater privilege than even John the Baptist had. I don't know if he's part of the church now or how all that works. I'll let John the Baptist worry about that. My, my deal is I have the Lord living in me. Your deal is you have the Lord living in you. And I, I think we, I think if we're guilty... One of the things we're most guilty of is neglecting that great truth that God is living in us. If you're born again, you know God is living inside of you. We know that. But we let all the things of this world, all the distractions of this world choke out the presence of God in our lives. And we ought to be ashamed of that. One day, hey, this world will be gone and we'll live in the fullness of the Spirit forever. I'm, I'm looking forward to that day. I don't know about you. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we just thank you for your word. We thank you for the great hope we have in Jesus Christ, Lord. But Lord, to some degree, that hope has been fulfilled in us already. Lord, and, and it's for us to, to live recognizing your presence, Lord. It's a matter of faith. Lord, help us to have that faith. Lord, we believe, help our unbelief. Help us, Lord, to, to uh, be uh, ever cognizant of your presence in our hearts and in our souls. Help us to learn to walk with you and talk with you in all that we do. Lord, to prepare ourselves for the even greater glory that you've promised us when when you do come for your church, your bride, and, and uh, we're brought together at that marriage supper of the Lamb, Lord. But even now, Lord, we've, we have the deposit. We have your spirit in us and, and help us not to take that for granted. Lord, we need your help there. We need you to, to empower us and fill us. and uh, Lord, help us to wean ourselves off the things of this world and prepare ourselves for that great day, Lord, when, when uh, there's, there's nothing but you. And what a deal that is. What a great day that will be. We just thank you in Christ's name. Amen.